from the Los Angeles Times, this is Can't Stop Watching, your TV faves on their TV faves. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. On today's episode, we can't stop watching Christine Baranski on the CBS legal drama, The Good Fight. She plays passionate feminist lawyer, Diane Lockhart. We talk about how she wound up singing that epic rendition of Ladies Who Lunch with Meryl Streep and Audra McDonald for Stephen Sondheim's virtual birthday party. You know what I called us? I said, we're the female Rat Pack. I'm Dean, Meryl's Frank, and Audra is Sammy. Let me put it this way. We have a future of benefits ahead of us. Christine also gets a little emotional discussing the future of the good fight when all this is over. Here we go. Hi, Yvonne. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. I'm in a house with three little grandsons, all under the age of six and a half, and a puppy, and my daughter and son-in-law. And so this is like not showbiz land here. (laughs) This is trying to find privacy and quiet, and my son-in-law's working from from my back office, and I just recorded this Sondheim song that I sang with Meryl Streep and Audra, and we did that in the back office uh, when the kids were asleep. It's just been a hoot to try and manage a career when you're just in a house full of very young people. I was going to say, like, how are you sort of adjusting to this new normal? I mean, we all sort of complain about wishing we had the time to slow down, and here it is, but yet it's not what we think it is. It's so funny. I I find that there are two groups of people. There are people with children who have to be, you know, quarantined with children and doing online education and, you know, just daycare challenges. And uh, then there are the people with all this time to cook and read. And, you know, so I'm asking my friends, oh my gosh, what, you know, what are you reading? And it's, Amazing how they are not doing the things that they might be able to do if they were given that amount of time. You know, I I keep thinking, oh, if we weren't in a house full of children, I've got this Jill Lepore history of the United States called These Truths came up a couple of years. I would just spend hours, or I'd like to think that I would spend hours of my time reading history and, and, you know, listening to music and taking long walks and really learning to meditate or brush up on a language. And I think it's an interesting thing that's happening. I wonder if I would actually do those things. Because I think the quality of our concentration is actually quite fractured during this quarantine, because nobody knows where, where this is going. So I, I think we're all in a, in a state of flotation. We're not on terra firma spiritually and psychically. So it's disorienting. Speaking personally, when you're in a house full of very young children, you know, I've been up since 6.30, 7 o'clock. Basically, it's childcare. And I, every day I get a long walk in and I take my lines for the Gilded Age because I'm learning all of those scripts. And when they go to bed, I manage to do some reading or studying. But that's it. The children take up uh, so much of your um, time, which is great because they're beautiful little children. But it is tiring. It's not, I don't lack for things to do. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to say, have you sort of caught up on any TV shows in this time? Or are you finding yourself watching what your grandkids are watching? And what is that? I just saw a bit of Kung Fu Panda 
Yesterday, I saw Walt Disney's Sword in the Stone, which is, I guess it was made back in decades ago. It was utterly charming. I have not been watching television shows because at the end of the day, I opt to read. I'm reading the collected works of Edith Wharton, and I do all this reading on the Gilded Age because um, when and if this ends, we shall be going into production for the HBO Julian Fellows Gilded Age. In fact, I would have been just finishing up The Good Fight last week, uh, would have been my last week of work on The Good Fight, and I would have been overlapping with Gilded Age for a few weeks, and I would have already been um, well into doing Gilded Age. So I'm trying to keep the Gilded Age in my consciousness as this next thing that I do, because I think one of the dangers is stopping, stopping your life, stopping that thing which you do. I I'm thinking a lot about Broadway dancers and how are they managing to, you know, you can sing in your apartment, you can keep your voice in shape and and do a Skype with your voice teacher. But personally, I am devoting the quiet time in my life to work as an actor doing research, creating my character's backstory, reading Edith Wharton, getting into the, you know, that era, which I find very exciting. And it also is a wonderful respite from this crazy world we're living in presently. Uh, reading about the, you know, the Gilded Age really takes you into almost a fairy tale place. Yeah, I'm very excited for that project. I was wondering where things sort of stood with that, like if you have any sense of when you'll get to do it. But I guess like everything, it's sort of wait and see. You know, the funny thing is nobody's ahead of the curve. It's so interesting. In terms of just the way we live our life, it all ended pretty much at the same time, more or less, very varied by a few weeks. And then none of us can move collectively until. So it's not like, oh, the Gilded Age or HBO because they've got a lot of money or a lot of clout or a lot of whatever, that they're going to start earlier. It's simply everybody is in the same boat this virus has leveled the playing field in a lot of ways and and not so in in other ways, obviously. Right. My assumption is that you're sheltering at home and looking elegant every day, like washing your hair and wearing clothes suitable for the outside world. But am I wrong? Are there days where you're wearing the sweatpants and your hair is up in a scrunchie? Like, give me the details. Okay, so I left New York. Uh, we, We closed production on a Thursday. Friday, I ran some errands and got some stuff together. By Saturday, my son-in-law was saying, "Uh, Mom, get out of town. Don't wait till Sunday. I'm worried. I'm worried they're going to shut down the city. But it happened very quickly in New York. So I packed things. I grabbed my scripts. I grabbed some sweaters and all. But I've been wearing the same clothes. I I don't have Diane Lockhart clothes in the country. I mean, why would I have glamorous clothes in the country. The reason I come here is to get away from New York and show business and everything. So yeah, I'm wearing a sweater that I've been wearing for weeks. I wear the same. There's no reason for me to dress up. I do make an effort to uh, to walk every day and uh, take a long walk and do some exercises because I just think for physical and mental health, it's good to just breathe a lot of fresh air and, and get your body moving. But it's in terms of being an actress, I mean, God, I don't have to wash my hair every day. I don't have to like do a hairspray. Nobody's 
blow drying my hair at six in the morning. I don't have to wear makeup. In so many ways, I'm relishing this thinking, wow, this is a great way to rest my hair and my skin. And to just, I eat chocolate ice cream every single day. I I don't do that when I'm working. And so I'm looking at all of the positives thinking, okay, why don't I just really enjoy this? Plus the time spent with my beautiful grandsons, albeit it can be a house full of screaming children and, and you know, my house looks like a daycare center. But then I think, wow, what a golden opportunity to, for me to spend this nonstop time with these beautiful children that I love and be with my family. And my other daughter is nearby. You know, I think if you all get along and you have a relatively good relationship with your family, it's a golden opportunity to, eat, you know, eat meals together, share thoughts, take walks. You know, the occasional anxiety, you know, comes in there like, are we ever going to have the same world? Are we ever going to be normal? There's there's a lot of reason for anxiety. And God knows reading the news can be just overwhelming. But um, there's a lot to be said about living in the moment and not being so frenetic. The only frenetic activity, oh my God, this life online, I've had to do a lot of stuff. In fact, you know, I, I sang that Sondheim song and honestly, Audra and Meryl and I were just beside ourselves because we were trying to coordinate a song singing from different houses and Zoom meetings and everything. It was it was just crazy, you know, trying to be on a performer who's singing into a cell phone. It's just crazy. I mean, look at this phone call, how much effort it took. <laughs> well, Christine, I want to ask you more about this virtual birthday celebration for Sondheim that happened. I mean, as you mentioned, you performed with Meryl and Audra. You guys performed Ladies Who Lunch, and you were all wearing robes and drinking wine, and it broke the internet. Did it? <laughs> it did. You have to understand the three of us, we were on a Zoom call thinking, we were all saying, oh my God, this is, are we out of our minds to do this? This could end our careers. Meryl was sure it was going to end her career. It was a very chancy idea to try and make it work. It came into my head because I always wanted to sing Ladies Who Lunch. I always wanted to play that character. But then I thought, well, okay, wait a minute. Why don't Meryl and Audra and I do it together? I thought if I started the song in a sort of, you know, not to, just wearing a bathrobe and drink, you know, having the wine glass, I sing the first stanza and everybody would think, oh yeah, Christine Baranski, of course she's going to sing that song. She always plays sophisticated women with drinks in their hand, in her hand. And then it goes to Meryl, which nobody was expecting. And then suddenly it goes to Audra. I thought, Steve is going to just be so delighted by this. And then we all agreed we weren't going to try and be glamorous divas on the, you know, on in front of our cell phones. I said, why don't we just either wear, have baseball caps and, you know, sweats, or then we decided on a bathrobe, like ladies drinking at home, either during the day or at the end of the day. And I could only do my material uh, when the kids went to sleep, when the house was quiet for a few days in a row. I was, you know, singing into my cell phone. And God knows I, I have to laugh because I thought, what if my grandchildren hear me bellowing? I'll drink <laughs> Rice, rice. But somehow we we managed, the three of us, to... to uh, 
to get it done. And we were just, we were just filled with anxiety that if it didn't work, it would spectacularly not work. (laughs) Did you know that people now want you ladies to start recording an album? You know what I called us? I said, we're the female Rat Pack. I'm Dean, Meryl's Frank, and, and Audra is Sammy. Let me put it this way. We have a future of benefits ahead of us. We were all, you know, saying this is going to send us to the actor's home. This is going, you know, we're going to go into retirement after this song. This is it going to just end our careers? And then I said, don't worry, we'll be doing, you know, benefits at the, um, at, at the actor's home. <laughs> I would pay <laughs> tickets for that, please. <laughs> you know, people talk about like creating art in this moment or being creative as sort of being therapeutic or a useful tool for processing emotions. Did you feel that in being part of that performance? Was it sort of therapeutic for you as it was for the audience enjoying this sort of momentary escape? In a word, deeply, yes, 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 it was. It was frustrating to have to do it into a phone and it was intimidating to try and get an acceptable performance that was also a shared, it was a trio and we were, you know, passing the ball, but we didn't have the benefit of hearing each other. We weren't doing it together. We recorded our stuff separately. We weren't singing together. So there was a lot of anxiety, but let me just say this. I've actually done a lot of Sondheim and I always feel when I work on his music that I like so many of the performers who spoke about the influence on their lives, you feel you have to go to a higher ground. Um, so we all got, you know, we all divvied up that great song and, and sort of owned it. It was really great. I want to talk about the good fight. I mean, Diane Lockhart is a character you've played longer than any other in your career. So you know her pretty well. So how do you think she would be handling sheltering at home? Like, what would she be doing? Diane would probably be learning German or perfecting her French or her Italian. Diane would be, of course, binge-watching all the great shows. She and Kurt would be watching all the great movies, the great Westerns. (laughs) Diane would be reading volumes of history and, and her favorite novels. You know, I think of Diane as just an intellectual, primarily a really smart, savvy, intellectual woman with a great sense of humor. She would be a news junkie, of course. She'd be forming opinions. She would be, as she has been for all these years, so appalled by the president's words and behavior. And she'd probably be calling um, various government officials or writing op-ed pieces about how to solve it. You know, there's a little bit of Elizabeth Warren in Diane, don't you agree? She's part Diane Sawyer, part Elizabeth Warren. (laughs) I like that. Well, I mean, the season four premiere was quite the stunner. It presented an alternate reality in which Hillary Clinton had won the presidency a sort of restoration of the timeline Diane was expecting in 2016. And it turns out this timeline has its own nightmares. So how was it to play in this world for a little bit? Well, it's a, it's a brain tease, isn't it? And I think that's the way Robert and Michelle wrote it as a what if dot, dot, dot. So instead of her mouth hanging open, watching Trumpy sworn in. She's jumping for joy, opening champagne. And then there's that look over her back like, wait a minute, is Hillary really the president? 
But what it takes us to once she gets to the office is all of these meetings and then a conference meeting and the knowledge, you know, she's informed that she's going to represent Harvey Weinstein. Well, Diane already knows the truth about Weinstein and his behavior. But the fact of the matter is, if Hillary Clinton had been inaugurated, women would be celebrating by the tens of thousands, maybe, in Washington that some glass ceiling had been broken. But women wouldn't have been, they wouldn't be pissed off in the way that they were with their galvanic anger the day after the inauguration. That was a stunning march, hundreds of thousands of angry women. And he propelled something He started something in motion because of his presidency and because of who he is. He brought into motion something that needed to be corrected in our society and has needed to be corrected in in culture for, I don't want to say decades, for centuries maybe. Would we indeed have had a Me Too movement if Hillary Clinton had been elected? Would there be a backlash against the guys? Would we have brought down Weinstein and would Matt Lauer still be? on the air, Charlie Rose, Jeffrey Epstein. It opened up a real can of worms and we were looking into something quite, quite ugly, uh, the misogynistic male culture. And it had to be looked at and had to be dealt with. And we're still dealing with it. But the kings in their, you know, just in their brilliance, beg the question, okay, yes, we probably would have been better with a Hillary Clinton presidency. But would indeed we have had the changes and the revolution that that took place? I also wonder what it would have done to Diane, the character. I mean, I know it's known that the good fight sort of had to recalibrate after Trump's win because the pilot was operating under the assumption that Hillary would win. And in a way, like, Trump has provided such dramatic terrain for Diane, like, because she doesn't know where to put her rage And I kind of wonder how the character might have been different if Hillary had won. I think that their idea was because at the time that we were shooting the pilot, we had had so many shootings. It was Black Lives Matter that was dominating the news, if you recall. And it was Michelle's idea to put, you know, that Diane lose all her money, which, number one, would be a very interesting issue. How does someone over the age of a woman over the well over the age of 50 or 60 start again. But that has been a problem for people in our society, particularly for women. But then the other thing is, if indeed she lost all her money and had to, the only place that would take her in is an African-American law firm. I think that would have, they were wanting to address much more uh, the racial aspect and the gender aspect, the ageism and the racism. And then along comes Donald Trump. And, you know, this show was named The Good Fight before Donald Trump put his hand on that Bible. The pilot was Hillary Clinton was the presumptive winner at that time. And uh, we had to rewrite the pilot. But it was named The Good Fight, which I find uncanny because really what have the last three, three and a half years been but a fight for those of us, well, the Diane Lockhart's, the liberal feminists, but for that part of the country that believes that this presidency is an aberration. And the characters are, you know, the fact that they were set in the Donald Trump presidency really gave a a muscularity to the plot lines, particularly for Diane. How do you indeed get through the day of watching news when you see this man as president? You know, that, that wonderful image of Diane banging her head against the wall 
like not knowing where to put her rage and all the things that she did in order to cope with her rage, starting with, you know, psilocybin and martial arts and, you know, realizing she might actually have to use her gun or joining a resistance group. All of that, I mean, it. I don't want to say it was the best thing that happened to the writing room, but I say this with, you know, my hats off to the Kings, and uh, I say it with great pride that I, I really believe this is the only show that has set contemporary characters smack in the middle of where we are and what we are living through psychically and spiritually as a country in the Trump years. Um, there's a lot of funny stuff out there and there's a lot of fantasy stuff, fantastical stuff that's addressing this dystopian moment, you know, The Handmaid's Tale and all. But we are the only show, I think, that actually has, you know, intelligent people, you know, working in a law firm, arguing cases, dealing with the rule of law in a lawless presidency, in a lawless administration. As an actor, did that take some getting used to, being able to bring what you think and feel about current issues into your work? No, it didn't take getting used to it. It just enhanced my already passionate interest in the news. And then lo and behold, I get this role, you know, living through doing The Good Wife all those years. I was always interested in what was happening because I just thought we were living through such an interesting time in history. But then with The Good Fight and the beginning of the Trump presidency, I really could say that I, I became a news fanatic. Well, some have, you know, rightly noted that The Good Fight is one of the few shows that could sort of aptly tackle what's happening now in some fashion. Do you suspect the Kings will tackle what's going on right now at some later point, maybe next season? I have not heard anything. I think, I don't know how in future we are going to be able to ignore what has just happened to us. If the end of the quarantine comes, what do we go back to? I mean, I'm a New Yorker. I I have two lives. I have my, my permanent residences here in Connecticut, but I spend so much of my time in New York because of my work, and I love New York. I've lived in the city since 1970 when I came to Juilliard. So all that is great about New York is embedded in my heart and soul. I don't know what it will look like. I think they've got a lot of uh, great material ahead if they're going to address this. And it's a pity we we didn't get to finish uh, season four because I just absolutely loved where we were going with uh, the whole arc of season four. I thought it was so interesting. Well, I will gladly wait for those episodes, however long they take. I was curious, I, I know you're not too much of a TV watcher, but... Was there much TV watching in your house growing up? When I was growing up, it was actually a golden age in television. And there was only one TV in the house. So we all had to agree. But it was only my mom and my brother and I. Although when my father was still alive, he died when I was eight. We did we did watch television then. And we watched Ed Sullivan's show was just a must-see because, and then you saw all those talented people. It was a variety show. And that's when you saw Elvis. That's when you saw the Beatles. The wonderful thing about TV back then was everybody congregated in one room and it was a communal experience. It was the, you know, the sort of modern equivalent of sitting around the campfire and telling stories. I mean, once a year you would watch The Wizard of Oz and it was a big deal. Everybody 
you know, gathered around for that yearly event. And I watched a lot of TV because I was sort of a latchkey kid and I would do my homework in front of the television set. But, you know, I I think I became a, you know, I learned about comedy because I watched some of the great, great comedians, you know, in my youth on television. I, I, my favorite show was the Dick Van Dyke show. Such amazing writing and two of them and the, the whole cast. I watched Lucy reruns, Odd Infinitum. I know every Lucy rerun. Of course, you know, All in the Family and all of the Norman Lear shows and the hour-long shows, the movie of the week. There was only one movie of the week. It was very special. So television really did inform my, my life. I know you're not on Twitter, but does someone on your team sort of give you a rundown of what people say about you? Because the Christine Baranski love is sort of something to behold. Like there's Christine fan club accounts. Do you have a sense of what's out there? No, I don't have any social media. I mean, I don't have Facebook and I don't want it. And now that I've seen where it's gone, I'm very glad I never opened an account Every so often, I'm made aware Kush Jumbo sent me something that the fans put together. When we sang You Are My Sunshine, asking the fans to come back, you know, after we skip a week of the good fight, all of these lovely young women did a kind of singing tribute to the show. And it was so moving. And I thought, well, if I had a Twitter account, but I told Kush to tell them how touched I was. And I kind of Twitter through other people. Honestly, I don't, I don't feel comfortable like checking to see what people are saying about me. I like to do my work and send it out in the world, but I, I'm reluctant to just keep looking back and seeing how I'm doing in terms of what people are saying. I think that way madness lies, you know, as long as people are happy and and like me, then that's great. Okay, we've come to the point in the show where I play a question that the last guest on the podcast, that'd be actor Sam Hewen, has for you, Christine. Here's what Sam wants to know. Oh, Christine. Well, I guess, you know, apart from just all of the, the regular stuff, like where are you, are you safe? Going back to her show, you know, how how do you think this has changed her and her character? But yeah, how is she going to approach things differently? If she's going to approach things differently or will it just go be, you know, back to work? I think when we all go back to work, I, I plan to give my colleagues and my crew members the longest hugs. I, we have something so special on that show and we always knew it. But when we all sat in the conference room and Brooke, our producer, said we were shutting down for two weeks. I told everybody how much I'd miss them and how gracefully they behaved the last few weeks when we had to wash our hands and be careful and how professional everybody everybody was. And I didn't know then, and none of us did, that we wouldn't be seeing each other. And we don't know, we don't know where we're headed, but normal sure looks like the greatest luxury and what we had as actors. You can imagine them. The Broadway kids, when they finally get back on the stage, when they finally get back and embrace their colleagues and get to do what they're good at doing and we're liberated from this prison that we're in, I just think we'll have a level of love and appreciation for what we had that's that's just going to make 
everything deeper and richer and more joyful. That was beautiful. Thanks for that thoughtful response. Sorry to have made you emotional. Oh, how can you not be emotional? Uh, It's like uh, yesterday watching all these beautiful performers thinking they're in their living rooms. They're giving their talent and they can't. And there was Steve Sondheim in his living room. (laughs) We couldn't applaud each other. Can't hear the applause. Anyway, Twitter's a form of applause. So let me just say to anybody on Twitter who's saying nice things, I love you and thank you. And and uh, I'll just keep trying to please you and, and live up to whatever expectation you have. I mean, I'm sure they will appreciate that. Our next guest will be Betty Gilpin from Glow. And I wonder if you have a question you'd like us to ask her. Oh, well, Betty Gilpin... I went to school with my daughter, Lily, and Isabel. And I knew Betty just running around, you know. And I read an interview with Betty that was so intelligent. She was so articulate. I would love to know how Betty, as a young actress, see, I've, I've already had most of my careers behind me, but as a young actress looking forward, how would she like at best for this to land? And does she suffer an intense anxiety about the nature of the business? It was always crazy and it was always unpredictable, but does she have any sense of where it's going or does it keep her up at night? (laughs) I'm sure she will have a great response for that. She'll have a great response, she will. Well, thank you again, Christine, for taking this time. We really appreciate having you on. Thank you, Yvonne, for a lovely interview. Thank you so much. That's it for the fifth episode of Can't Stop Watching. I'm your host, Yvonne Villarreal. Our producer is Paige Heimson, and our executive producer is Abby Fentress-Swanson. Our engineer is Mike Heflin, and a special shout out to Elena Howe for booking the guests for this podcast. Come back tomorrow. We're talking to actress Betty Gilpin. We were about a week and a half into shooting Glow here in LA, when the lockdown happened, so we're out stuck out here, and my husband has been bird watching to a point where it was quirky, has now crossed over into perhaps an illness. And if I hear one more long description of a hawk or a crow, you're gonna hear about me on the news. If you like Can't Stop Watching, do this girl a favor, subscribe and give us that sweet five-star review on Apple. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Matt Brennan, and Clint Shaw. We really hope you're enjoying this podcast created by the journalists at the LA Times. Right now, access to facts has never been more important and the Times is in the business of reporting them. Stay connected and subscribe because your subscription supports the production of podcasts like this one and our award-winning journalism. Visit latimes.com slash support LA Times to subscribe. Thanks for listening and see you tomorrow.